it was a lot of fun talking to Augie. He's one of those guys I've seen him at training events and competitions and whatnot around and had conversations with him here and there. But that's very different than sitting down and just having an hour and a half conversation. And it was an absolute blast. It was a pleasure talking to you, August. And I'm sure we'll do it again. There's more conversation to be had. So I look forward to next time. I want to say thank you for everybody who's supporting in however you're supporting. It's much appreciated. And Subscribe to the Tree Thinking YouTube or to the social media Definitely subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that That's a huge help. Uh, but I want to send out a shout-out to the people that have been donating recently. Uh, thank you so much. I don't get your name when I get the donation, so I just get, you know, it just shows me that there's been a donation. So I would shout you out by name if I had it, but instead I'll just say, you know who you are, so thank you so much. The value for value model is the one I want to make work. I want to stay away from doing ads as as much as I can. We get uh, offers for ads on the show, but I so far I've turned them down because I want to we'll stick with the value for value. And as, as long as you guys are willing to keep with this model and you keep donating, then I'm going to stay away from those ads. So uh, much appreciated. Thank you so much. If you can't donate cash, tell a friend. If you listen to this podcast, you probably have a tree friend that might enjoy it too. Tell them to listen. Uh, Word of mouth is the best way to grow a podcast. So uh, that is something you can do that really helps as well. So get the word out there. Continue to get it out. We want to keep it growing and and keep it happening. So thank you guys so much. And uh, without further ado, we'll take care of some business and then get right into it. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not, nor is it intended to be, a substitute for professional arboriculture advice and should never be relied upon to perform or direct arboricultural work. The Tree Thinking Podcast makes no representations as to the accuracy, completeness, or suitability of any information on this podcast and will not be liable for any damages arising from the use of any information in the practice of arboriculture or tree work. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The podcast and its hosts are not to be held responsible for misuse, cited, and or unsighted copies of the content within this podcast by others. The Tree Thinking Podcast may not be reproduced or distributed without the express written consent of the Tree Thinking Podcast. No one starts off knowing everything, but if you stay on the path, the guy that only does removals, has a harness without leg straps, and ties his lanyard to himself, he can go on to become a fully trained arborist running his own company. Then, go on to become a trainer at Nats, traveling around, helping share what he knows, and upping the game of our profession. On this episode of the Tree Thinking Podcast, we talk about tree work in the early 90s, what the future might look like, and everything in between on how it started and how it's going with August Schilling. All right, we're back again, Uh, and this week we have a guest, somebody who's been in the Pacific Northwest for quite a while now, and I really look forward to our conversation, Uh, but before we get too far into it, I'm Andrew. I'm Jamie, and today we have with us August Schilling. What's up, Augie? Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, just enjoying Friday evening. The noise in the background is my dryer. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. Hey, that's how it goes sometimes. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
Uh, I, I just realized it was on. Hopefully, you don't hear it too badly. No, I haven't heard it at all. Yeah, yet. we're good to cool. go. So, uh, I guess where to start? You know, you've you've been a personality in the Pacific Northwest as long as I've been here. So I look forward to kind of getting into more of the details of your career. And I think the best place to start is at the beginning. So, how did you get into the tree game? Well. I basically got into the tree game accidentally. I was a recent college graduate and had kind of felt like I had wasted a lot of time during my education, not skiing. (laughs) And I decided that I was going to be a ski bum for an indeterminate amount of time. I figured, you know, three, five, 10 years. I just need to get a lot of skiing in because I've missed a lot of skiing. Right. And to get from June until December, I needed work and I had a place to stay at Lake Tahoe and a job opportunity with a tree service and basically got with a tree service as a groundsman that summer and had had a lot of experience rock climbing during the college years. And so when the boss found out that I was curious about climbing, that I had the rock climbing experience and that his grumpy old climbers were kind of sick of the work, he asked if I was interested in trying and the grumpy old guys kind of challenged me, you know, they were like, you'll never be able to do it. Blah, blah, blah. You know, college boy was their terrible nickname for me. And so one actual Friday afternoon after lunch, they were like, you think you can do it? Go for it. And the boss was like, yeah, here's the gear, you know, do the next tree. And I did it exactly how Musman and Drew had been doing their climbing and they were impressed and like, okay. And the boss was like, well, do you want to climb all the time? And I said, absolutely. And basically became a climber after I had been on the job for, maybe a month, a month and a half. And that just, that's the accident. At that point, I got a <laughs> significant pay raise and it was really fun. And basically that changed my life. And I've never really looked back. I mean, I sometimes think, well, yeah, I did want to be a journalist and everything, but in in many ways, I'm, having that same kind of self-expression through my life as an arborist, communicating with other arborists, training young arborists, helping people out. Um, you know, I get to write reports. So, so I feel like I accidentally discovered the industry and here I am. And in a way, 30 years later, like my education is coming into play more and more as my role evolves in the industry. Yeah, and I don't know if a journalism over the last 30 years is the the industry you would want to be in necessarily, you know. We yeah, we ended up I'm just, Oh, I, I was working with a uh a guy that was a writer for the Register Guard and a bunch like Outdoor Magazine and a bunch of these, you know, publications throughout the last 20 years and he was a seasonal at, on the city crew with me. Like, you know, just first tree job you know, in his mid fifties, because 
that's where the journalism career has led over the last 30 years. You know, it's, wow. there's just not, wow. a, not a lot of yeah. uh, newspaper writing jobs out there. And I think the f- photo journalism might even be a little bit more scarce to be part of, you know? Yeah. But uh, yep. one, one thing that yep. I've, I've talked about quite a bit is kind of the difference of getting into the industry back in the day and getting it into it today. You know, one, I was kind of surprised to hear that you're climbing after a month. When I started climbing, it was like, you got to work the ground for a year. You got to prove yourself for a year on the ground. And it seems like nowadays it's more and more that guys will come in and just, you know, be able to get into the tree. And I've, I've thought that was a big part of like, you know, YouTube and all these other resources that people have to kind of almost like cheat codes for getting in the game. Um right. And maybe it was yeah, the rock climbing I mean, background, think, but what what do you think that was? I guess what what are the differences that you've seen? Well, in those days, to a great extent, tree work in the High Sierra was like the wild wild west. Yeah, and there was minimal training. The equipment was a little bit crazy. By today's standards, I mean, we worked with an old model 290 Moorbark, the original Eager Beaver. Nice. Um, it was like a 1982 or something. It was the first commercial chipper, literally. And when it came out, they got sued by Eager Beaver Tree Service up in Victoria, British Columbia for a trademark infringement <laughs> and had to stop using the Eager Beaver name for something like 20 years. And I bet that the reason they're using it now is that eager beaver up in BC has now gone out of business or closed up playing the long game right there. (laughs) What what was that? Playing the long game right there. Just wait them out for the name. It's reappeared. And I'm like, huh? So either they had a financial agreement or the business closed up there. And actually I should figure out because because I, I stumbled upon the brother of the owner of Eager Beaver Tree Service up in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And I, I could probably figure out what that story is. So we'll talk about that in another episode. Excellent. Maybe. Um, but yeah, so that, that thing didn't even have an infeed tray. Yeah. It had like this four-sided funnel-shaped opening where the feed wheels were. And so literally if my hand is this long, like the depth of that funnel was like from my thumb knuckle to my fingertips. So the rollers, they could catch your pant leg. Oh my gosh. You know, and right into a a disc chipper you go. So was it a check and duck? No, it was not. It was a hydraulic feed system. So it wasn't high speed. I have worked with those also. And those are terrifying. Um, but they get the job done (laughs) almost a miracle of physics that they don't destroy themselves (laughs) but but yeah so what was that i've never seen one in action and that's oh really yeah they are they're crazy yeah yeah i've seen them i've never had to use one thank goodness uh because it it looks absolutely insane i mean the name chuck and duck is is no it's no joke that's the training (laughs) like you know you just throw it and get the hell out of the way because it'll i mean it pulls it in as fast as the wheels turning wow yeah Yeah. so the piece is basically they 
start at like 20 miles an hour. And by the time the branch tips are going in, they're probably going 60 miles an hour. <laughs> oh yeah. they're, just, they're just gone. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's crazy. But yeah. And, and logs just kind of violently get eaten. You know, the self feeding of a larger piece is, is kind of terrifying, mm -hmm. very loud, Yeah. but, yeah. but they do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, they get the job done. They're simple. There's less stuff to fail. I think that's probably who's there's still, I think Aspland still uses them. Really? And yeah. Yeah. Wow. wow. I think, I think all tech still makes them for Aspland. Wow. And they're possibly the only company that still uses them. That that's crazy. Yeah. I was, I was looking at uh, a little, a little, I was looking for dump trucks for my weekend gig. And I came across an old, it must have been like a 66 International, and it it was a, a chip truck where the where the gearboxes were. There was a probably like four inch chuck and duck fit where the gearboxes were. So you could- On the side. On the side, so you could feed it in the side wow. and shoot it straight back. And the, right. the truck was way too rough for me to purchase it. It wasn't, you know, it was- it, I wouldn't have been able to drive it home and the amount of money I would have had to put into it to get it running. I, I wanted it just right. cause it would have been so cool to like, just cherry it out and have a classic international with like yep. this old, I actually had this, uh, I've got an old nine inch Vermeer, one, uh, one of the old nine hundreds. And I wanted to see if I couldn't mm -hmm. remove the old chuck and duck and put like, just cut it off the chassis and put that nine inch in, in the awesome. place. But the dream just didn't come true. I've, instead, right. I'm going to try to turn that nine inch into an electric chipper, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> oh, cool. That's amazing. Yeah. So was that truck up there in the Eugene area? It was, it was in uh, Lapine, which is okay. outside. It kind of, uh, I think it's South of Bend. Yep. And, yep. and so it was in the winter and it coming from Lapine to Eugene, you have to go over 58, which is a pretty, treacherous pass and it was a snowy icy weekend right and this truck uh there was linkage on on the shifter and linkage or no sorry uh linkage on the gas and then there's something else like the shifter you like had to hold it in the gears or it'd pop out and and the gas pedal there, oh. the linkage was out so you there's like a rope holding it up and while i was test driving it the rope like untied and so the gas pedal started flopping to the side so by by the time i'm driving it back into this guy's driveway like one hand i'm holding this rope up so i can engage the gas and i'm kind of like putting <laughs> pressure on the shifter just trying to put dry it's like dude i would love to buy this maybe if we were in eugene i right. would do it on like this crazy project mode but there's no yeah. way i'm driving this over the 58 pass and making it home alive so <laughs> yep yep yeah, yeah that that would not be a fun drive. No, no. Like yeah, that. that'd be crazy. But it was a sweet rig, man. I still think about that one. <laughs> yep. You know. Yep. But yeah, those that is from a different. So explain your like. What was the system you first learned to climb on? Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> man. I'm going to, I'm going to text you a photo right now. Oh, cool. oh, nice. Nice. So basically it was spurring up everything with a wire core flip line and a belt. 
Uh-huh. Not even no leg loops. Just um, like a lineman belt. And just a climbing belt. Yeah, like a lineman belt, basically. In fact, you know, and back to the wild, wild west. So I was using my boss's gear and he just thought leg loops and butt support were just a hindrance. And so he had literally cut them off. So he had this really nice leather padded <laughs> back strap, basically with D's on the side um, and a wire core lanyard with that reversible. Well, I don't remember even what the hitch is called. Just the, like a monkey fist. You, oh, what was that? oh, the one for, for tending your slack. Where exactly. It's, it's basically it a just, half hitch. It, it's a half hitch through your D. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It locks on itself. And then he had. Um, That's the old school way of doing it. A ring around po- a portion of it so it was reversible. Yeah. Because normally, if you hang from the other end, it'll just pull through really fast and you'll fall. But if you find some way to add a point of friction, and I wish I had a close up picture of that because it was kind of cool because it meant that you could pass lanyards with past branches with both ends of the lanyard. Um, okay. Where is this thing? Yeah. You know, and it, that's yeah. how they used to do it with a chain also. Right. Cause obviously yeah. a, it'd be hard to do a chain with a, yeah. a rope grab, you know, so they right. like feed it through itself. Yeah, all it's weird. the only way to work with a chain. Yeah. That, <laughs> how far yeah. we've come. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, so no prussic, just um, a half hitch. So you sit in it and it kind of grabs itself. Yeah, it's no, it, literally, it's like an adjustable knot. So like you tie you tie it off to itself and the knot is loose enough so that you can kind of adjust it to give yourself more or less slack. Okay. Yeah, it's as crazy as it sounds. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, the let's see the tail goes the, I could do it if I had it here in my hands, Uh but I'll try and find a picture and send it to you in the next day or so. That'd be awesome. Oh, this is a great picture that you sent us. Yeah, that was literally, that was 1992. My second summer killing tree, well, killing dead trees. We were working the first, well, like the second really big beetle kill in the Tahoe basin. Um, And so it was just like, 10 removals a day for two summers. Wow. Nice. Pretty amazing. So just learning basic rigging. Um, so anyway, yeah. So on ascent, just using both ends of a lanyard, passing branches, but mostly since it was removal only, our system was just cutting off branches on the way up. Yep. Yeah. Um, Obviously, we weren't sophisticated enough to understand that if you leave as many branches as you possibly can, you're going to get more dampening from them as the tree moves around. It's going to actually make it safer. So, I mean, there's pretty much nothing I do the same anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Except except wear a hard hat and safety glasses. Although safety glasses in those days were like Ray-Bans underneath a visor. Yeah. You had to, you know, you had to look cool all the time. Yeah. Um, so then the crazy thing for getting out of a tree, if we were going to pull it over with a rope, the boss provided us with a, a big old steel carabiner and a steel rescue aid. 
and we would just lower down on the rigging line. Yeah. Yeah. But if it was a chunk down job, you just climb up on your lanyard, climb down on your lanyard, never have a climbing line with you. Um, it was really an interesting company. It was interesting doing removals only. At one point, there was an issue of Arborist News lying around. And I was flipping through it and asking the owner, his name was Drew, questions about, you know, um, whether or not he was interested in becoming an arborist. You know, I didn't, not knowing that we already were arborists, we just weren't that kind of arborist. Yeah. Um, and he said, oh my God, are you crazy? Could you imagine like climbing a tree with a pole saw and cutting deadwood all day? Like that would <laughs> suck. And I was like, I guess so. I mean, because what we did was like just totally aggressive, fast, constant movement. Yeah. Not really worrying about anything. And, you know, what I love about pruning is you're really helping trees and I pretty much only do target pruning, no vanity pruning. Mm -hmm. So I really feel good about what I'm doing. Um, but I do worry about what it's going to look like afterwards yeah, and how it's going to respond and how the client's going to like it. And if there's going to be something that annoys them after they look at it for a year. You, um, do you want to take a, uh, do you want to describe the difference between target and vanity pruning for people? Sure. So when I say target pruning, I basically refer to the things that the trees need yeah. and specifically identifying them before getting up into the tree. And generally what I'm looking at is things that are about to fall out of the tree and do harm. Mm -hmm. So big deadwood, broken branches. And then the next thing I look at is branches that are going to fail and yeah. do harm. Yeah. And so then I just basically look for end weight reduction. And those are really the things that I like to do most in pruning. Yeah. And that's basically what I try and sell to my customers. I explain that they're saving money by only doing what the tree actually needs. They don't have to have me around for as often or as much. Um, and and the tree is happier because you're not nitpicking it. And literally there are all sorts of great reasons to leave the tiny deadwood, like nesting material for birds. Yeah. Not even joking, but literally, yeah. If yeah. you pick every tree to death, crows and blue jays, which basically are twig builders, are screwed. And then the squirrels will go nuts and they'll strip the rest of the tree out. Yeah. So yeah. and and they'll take all the live wood. Um, so, so basically, yeah, target pruning is just going after specific things that are identified beforehand as, as the necessities for the tree. Um, and then occasionally things like, you know, clearance for a building or clearance for a roadway or a driveway. Um, but when I say vanity pruning, the, the, the counter, um, I won't like chop a hole through a canopy to viewscape. Yeah. somebody's tree so that they can see whatever mountain it is or whatever sunset it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Vista prune, <laughs> the Vista prune. Yep. Yeah. So reducing canopies for views. So yeah, viewscaping, um, or it basically is all viewscaping. It's yeah. either like elevating conifers to get the view back, or cutting a hole through one or cutting a hole through a deciduous tree. Uh, I really, 
really try and avoid that. Yeah. The other one is the, the uh, building clearance. You know, someone wants right. the tree 40 feet above the building and it's like, what are you doing? If you have a failure up high, you're giving that thing 40 feet to pick up inertia. And explaining that usually changes their mind. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Remind them also, if it has 40 feet, it will definitely land butt first. Yeah. Like a, oh, that's like a, a good one. Like a dart. Yeah. Oh. Just like stuff it right through their ceiling too. Yeah. So, Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've encountered that a lot in the commercial world where you have, you know, apartment complexes and they literally will ask for like 40 feet of clearance and you ask them why. And they're like, because I don't want you back here in three years, yeah. you know, or, or they're love- really thinking that if, if they do 40 feet, they can go 20 years without another arborist visit. Yeah. Well, they might have a failure and then you'll be there, you know, <laughs> picking up after it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. You'll have the top half of a tree fail the other direction. Exactly. And smash somebody's car in a windstorm. The the other one I love is like, I just don't want any needles on there. And it's like, you could get, you could take this whole side off and you're still going to have needles in that gutter. I mean, you know, it's just how it works. Yeah, no, I've, I know some of the, uh, some of the arborists that, you know, were mentors for me and that I really respect have got to a point in their career where they have enough of a clientele where they're not, you know, they don't need more work. And so they just tell people, you know, I I'll do what the tree needs, Yep. you know, and I, I, it's perfect. It's like an electrician or a plumber. You don't tell them how to do their job. You don't tell them like, Oh no, run the electricity over here. Maybe the plumbing, maybe you should use this other fitting for the plumbing. You know, people recognize them as the expert and the person that knows. So they just get out of the way and let them do their job. And I, I wish that's, you know, the, the difference is in a lot of ways is people are so emotional about trees, you know, and they have their opinion. So it kind of makes, it's a good and a bad thing. Cause if you can harness that, that emotion in them and turn it into a positive thing where they love their tree, then that's ideal. But the downside is emotions can go the other way too, <laughs> you know, but there's, I've been trying to do that more and more where I just say, Hey, this is what the tree needs. And of course, if there's like one branch and it's not going to make a difference for the tree or, you know, if there's that little difference I can make, that'll stoke them out. I'll do it. But more yep. and more, I try to stay away from going crazy. You know, yep. it's like I'll lift a canopy if I'm getting light for another tree below it, but I'm not right. going to lift the canopy like that for your view. <laughs> you know, Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah, down in Southern California, lacing out trees is really popular where the, they literally will ask you to basically lion tail all oh. their trees because they want to see the architecture of all the branches. They want to see further up into the canopy. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, and it, it all comes from misunderstanding. It all comes from the fact that trees are actually complicated organisms Yeah, and that people don't study trees. People don't really go down the botany route if they're biologists they usually go into pharmacology or human medicine you know um so trees are pretty misunderstood and so people really see them as like this inanimate object about as sensitive as a stone and you can do anything you want and and it'll just still be a tree so so we really do have a big responsibility to educate our clientele 
as to what they are and why they are more complicated than that and why we do have to be careful with them. Yeah. Yeah. There's some really cool, and I'm sure you've seen it. Some of Susan Summers, uh, research about, con- you know, the way trees communicate through the mycelium network yep. and how they're, uh, they're really realizing that trees have a nervous system. You know, there's trees that will react and that you can train. There's yep. uh, certain mimosa trees where if you touch the leaves, they'll contract. Right. right. And you touch the leaves and contract. But if you do it enough times, they learn that that's not a threat. And so then they won't contract when you touch right. that leaf again. And so yep. and that that shows that that tree is learning. It's, it's yeah, understanding I, that this input creates this response, you know, and it's not the same way we do, you know, so don't get me wrong. It's not like training a dog, but there's more right. to it than just a rock, you know? Yep. Yep. It's fascinating. Absolutely. And even if they want to just see it as, you know, uh, inanimate's not the right word, but just this structure in their backyard. Well, physics, let's look at that. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Over pruning yep. is going to lead to it's going to be counterproductive to what you're trying to do. Yeah, you know, I just did a canopy reduction on a beach the other day, and the 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 it has a, a big history of failures. You know, so we kind of wait till the dormant season. We're going to go pretty heavy on this thing, but the client was standing on his porch the whole time, like wanting me to just strip the thing up. He kept saying, "Yeah, all those horizontals, those, those <laughs> fail. Can you get those?" And I'm like, all right. All right, man. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about this again. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. over and over. But yeah, taking right. the time to educate it. It got on my nerves a little bit, but if I can help him understand, you know, then that's a win. <clears throat> yep. Yep. And that's, you know, that's one of those communication skills that we're constantly developing as arborists. Yeah. Sort of like how to communicate, how to educate how to do it calmly and clearly and not have it make it so that you spend the whole day talking to your client from the canopy of the tree instead of making cuts and snipping (laughs) away. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's really the thing when they start asking a million questions, it's like, well, I really thought that I had explained this pretty well during our consultation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, but yeah, you have to humor them. And especially if they're really insistent, then you have to like ramp it up to educating them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's an interesting one. The, you really have to kind of build that rapport and build that trust with them, you know, cause yeah. if they don't trust you, then they're going to try to micromanage you. And that's, right. that's when it goes south fast. Right. On many levels. <laughs> Fat fingering as they say. Yeah. 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 That same job. So that, that beach tree, big, awesome beach tree, it shares properties. Right. And the one neighbor, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we've had a long relationship and she just trusts us to do absolutely everything. So it was like the dynamic, like she would come out and be like, Oh, this is amazing. And I would tell her what I'm doing. She's like, perfect. You know? And then he was up there like, (laughs) get rid of all of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's how it goes sometimes. Yeah. We do more than just cut on trees. So yep. how how did you go from uh, kind of take down, crew, no leg strap, just get after it, tree work, uh, to becoming 
you know, a kick-ass arborist? That was actually, I, that was one really cool employer here in Ashland. Um, basically after Lake Tahoe, I floated around mostly ski bumming, trying to become a professional bicycle racer also, and making my cash by just doing tree jobs here and there. Um, moved here to Ashland in 93. That year I worked for a company called Valley Tree Service out of Central Point. That didn't last for very long. Bounced around, ended up doing a little bit of tree work at a maple farm in Vermont for a little while in 94. Like East Coast Vermont? East Coast Vermont. So was it a syrup maples? Yep. Yeah, sugar maples. Yeah. Saccharinum. Mm -hmm. Saccharum. Saccharum. Yeah. What were you what were you doing to them? Uh, deadwooding. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Basically he didn't like walking around and worrying about things falling on him when he was tapping and running lines and doing all that stuff. So yeah, just kind of wandered around and just while I was trying to be an athlete, you have this like skill that people will pay really good money for pretty much anywhere. You can travel as an arborist really well. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I guess that was, that was my first real experience pruning. Um, and then I actually ended up getting hired by a company here in Ashland called the Arborist. And they had a big plant healthcare program and were really interested in educating and really saw the value of the ISA credentialing as a marketing tool and as a means of improving communication with employees so that you can talk about work and interpret work orders better. So basically this guy named Pete hired me and encouraged me to become a certified arborist. And so like all of a sudden I found myself having to learn how to climb without spurs and to take a pole saw up into a tree, all stuff I had never done before. And I just thought, Oh my God, I've basically been wanting to do this my whole life because I literally grew up loving working on rose bushes and fruit trees. I was always in the garden and I kind of in that, that first year with Pete here, I was like, well, trees are just giant rose bushes without thorns. You know, they (laughs) basically, there's this commonality. Once you understand one, you can sort of step off into the next pretty easily. Um, And yeah, he basically paid my ISA membership, said he would pay for the exam really wanted me to be a, to be a certified arborist. And so that really sparked my intellect. Basically I had only practical experience, no formal training in climbing um, or pruning or anything. I mean, basically it was like removals. They were like, this is how we do it. Go do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um And so to pass the certification exam, I 
sort of real, I got the study guide and I realized like, well, I have a lot to learn. So I had to buy books and borrow books. And I basically read nothing but books about trees for half a month. I mean, half a year and took the exam. And basically all of that kind of sparked pre-existing intellectual curiosity. You know, I was already a nature lover. Um, I all through college and everything, you know, you go out in the woods with your friends on a weekend and do crazy stuff. And by the end of Saturday, you're going, Oh my God, everything's interconnected. You know? and <laughs> so I, I think the process of studying for the arborist exam, learning how to prune trees, learning how to climb without spurs, being in a hippie town here in Ashland, It, it, it totally changed the kind of arborist that I was going to end up being mm -hmm. because like I said, prior to that, I would have been, you know, nothing but removals and maybe heading into the logging direction. Um, but when I realized that actually, Oh yeah. Getting up in a tree with a pole saw is really amazing and you really can make a difference. And then you start to get the satisfaction of a client coming home from work and just going like, whoa, that's amazing. After you've mistletoed their oak or something like yeah. that. I just yeah. love all of it. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, don't get me wrong. I still absolutely love removals. They're my favorite puzzles. And as I was mentioning earlier, I still love the fact that you don't have to worry about what they look like at the end of the day. It, <laughs> that you have no concern about how it's going to look. Yeah, yeah. It's just got to be gone. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I, I do love that. And I love rigging mm -hmm. and, and I love communicating and I love training. So seeing a, a big complicated removal come off smoothly with everybody doing their roles and, being flexible and moving from role to role and having good teamwork and good communication. I, I totally love that. Oh, that's so uh, rewarding. Yeah. Oh man. It really is. Yeah. Like, Oh yeah. We've got the coolest team ever. Um, that's a really great feeling. Yeah. I think and, that's built into our DNA. You know, I mean, it goes back, I, I'd imagine to hunting big game and like the yep. whole tribe working together to bring down this big game and bring home some food or, Yep. you know, accomplishing these goals that keep the tribe alive, you yep. know, and, uh, you, you kind of tap into that on those big removals. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, I, I certainly love doing removals, but there's just something spiritually fulfilling about pruning trees. Yeah. And, and, and they're also, you know, as a nature lover, there are the daily surprises. I mean, um, weird encounters with birds or finding stuff in trees. I don't know if you've ever found like a necklace 50 feet up in a tree <laughs> yeah. or, you know, I've, I've got, can't find where they are, but like a really cool antique ice tong. Oh, silver yeah. plated yeah. with wow. crow's feet. I found one of those um, like 30 feet up in an arborvita hedge that I was oh, removing. Weird. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, this is weird. Um, they had a bike in a sequoia. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Was it like 60, 70 feet up? Yeah. Probably, yeah, 70, 80 is a, a way. Wow. It was right next to a skate park. So I think it's kind of obvious <laughs> what happened, you know. Right. But uh, talk about working together as a team to accomplish your goal. No <laughs> There were some kids that had fun with that one. It was Definitely. all the way at the top of this giant sequoia. I mean, it was, uh, I was kind of proud of whoever did it, yeah. to be yep. honest with you. you Absolutely. Know? <laughs> I like to imagine they just sent it out of the bowl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. That. Yeah. And then climb down. Yeah. Yeah. Climb down. Yeah. Nailed it. (laughs) Yep. Well, I actually had a big pruning job in a gigantic ponderosa on a private property right next to Lithia Park here in Ashland. Yep. And as we were looking at it, first consultation. I'm looking and I'm like, what is, are those garbage cans up there? And again, this is like a, let's call it a 200 foot ponderosa pine, massive at the base. And I'm like, those are garbage cans. And I was actually not there with the property owner. I never met the property owner. I was there with a landscape contractor who's sort of the property manager. Uh And I've known him for a long time. And I was like, Seth, you might know Seth, know Jamie. Seth. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yep. Do you think someone was growing pot in the top of that tree? And he's <laughs> like, he's like, no. And I'm like, dude, look at that's two garbage cans, uh-huh. like yeah. 150 feet up there, bud. Like, and so we walk over to the base of the tree, and sure enough, there's eighth inch drip line oh, or a quarter inch drip line going up, and they were siphoning out of that water feature at the very top of the park, right up into the tree. Oh, at the reservoir. What was that? At the reservoir. No, it's at the very top of the park. You know, that property that basically is just a garden right now. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. That property. Okay. The big, there's a U hedge and there's a gigantic ponderosa pine that goes right up. And there's like a little diversion that maybe, I don't even know where the water comes from, but it's a little concrete diversion and they, and it goes underneath English laurels. So it's basically invisible to everybody. And that's, that was their water source. Yeah. Yeah. So it was funny because I was like, well, I think we should, I think we should take those down. Um, what was the, what was really hilarious about it is that, so I ended up having to rig them down. It was complete pain in the ass. They were full of really high quality soil. And Seth looked at it and he's like, oh, that's some really good stuff. I'm going to want that. And he kept the soil. (laughs) I'm like, ah, nice. Yeah. How high up did you say these were? They were 150 feet up there. Holy smokes. They were way up there getting lots of light. No one would ever see them. Yeah. I've had conversations about doing that back in the day about, you know, but that, that was our thing is like, man, we don't, you can't haul water all the way up to the top of a tree, you know, but as, as they, like me and the guys right. working with as a couple arborists, we're like, no one would ever find if we went, you know, we had kind of a spot picked out, like you just prune to get a little extra light into the top of that tree, you know, strap a couple buckets to the, yep. to the trunk and you're good to go. <laughs> That's so funny. But <laughs> yep. Yep, exactly. I'm kind of so, stoked that someone did it. <laughs> from what I understand, 
what, what was that? I'm kind of stoked that someone did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was pretty cool. So another good trick is to work with gravity. Um, if you can find a cliff near a steep hill with the water source up high, oh, yeah, people yeah. used to like bring water beds out there and they would dig a little depression for the waterbed, fill that and then run the drip line, you know, basically any configuration so that the waterbed bladder is higher than the plants. Sure. You can either go all the way to the ground or if it's a cliff, you can go straight across to the tree. <laughs> nice. and just, and just use gravity to water it. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> yep. and, yeah. So it, there was a little tradition of people growing pot and trees down here in Southern Oregon. Nice. And basically it was for a lot of reasons, just because deer were really a problem yeah. before it was legal. You know, you'd find your favorite spot out there, you could get it started and you go out and check and all be gone. Yeah. Just eaten to death. So yeah, people started getting clever about trying trees. That that could be a new strain, epiphyte. Yeah, I was gonna say interesting epiphyte. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. That's hilarious. Yeah. Right on. Nice. So yeah. so yeah. So yeah, that's that's the adventure of pruning, is that every day really is different. You know, you have birds fly under your feet. Yeah. Um I absolutely love birds. So bird interactions are really cool. Um, yeah. And then just solving problems. Yeah. It's pretty cool. We had a cool, I also, yeah, we had a cool bird interaction. Um, piece of deadwood. This sucks, but it happened, got tossed out and there was a nest in there. Right. So the ground crew, we kind of all stopped, you know, morale went to a low there. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Everyone stops. We pieced it back together you know, got some like throw line or something kind of tied this piece of deadwood back together in the cavity. And then we were getting it back in the tree to secure it like right where it was basically. And yep, then we were cool. talk to the clients afterwards, but it was some kind of little sparrow. I think one of our, uh, one of the crew looked it up. Um, I wish I could remember what it was, but there were two of them checking out their nest as it's being right. raised up to me and the other climber. And one of the birds landed on uh, Becca, like on her rope runner. And nice. The other one was landing on the Whoa. piece while I'm like holding it. Like they, wow. They were just, what's going on? Like getting so close to us. I've never experienced that before. It was and so cool. They knew that you were there to help. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they probably would not have been within uh, that close, you know, landing on the rope runner if they looked yeah. at you as yeah. a threat. They're like, you're putting this back, right? Yeah. <laughs> I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> My bad. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I had a very sad moment like that where I was removing an oak and had thrown into it yeah. and hadn't realized that I had climbed past a cavity. So at the end of the day, I was chunking down. It was a white oak, you know, weird, lots and lots of tops that aren't that big around. So I was just chunking it out. And I literally fell the section that I had climbed on that morning, just flopped out like a six footer. It landed on some rocks and exploded and uh, um, a screech owl came out. Oh, wow. oh. And what was crazy, like it's little circadian reality. It's, or, you know, it's ability to locate itself in space. It flew right to where 
the hole had been mm. in the tree. And it was like flapping around in midair going like, where's my tree? Yeah. 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 And, and meanwhile, the problem is that diurnal birds absolutely hate owls. So at this point we've got like six scrub jays and a couple stellar's jays and a whole bunch of birds. And they're all like mobbing this owl. Oh man. Whoa. And the homeowner saw it and he was completely freaking out and telling me like, fix this. You caused this, you know? And I was just like, ah, I felt yeah. So bad. yeah. 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 Imagine that owl. It's like rolling out of your, the top bunk. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah. And then your brother start hitting you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden it's daytime. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. No, that, yeah. that kind of reminds me of one of my lows in my tree climbing is I was removing this, this, giant fur you know kind of on the edge of a fur forest in eugene in south eugene and i send out this you know this top and it comes down boom hits the ground and i'm looking down you know you know you're kind of looking down and watching him start to process the tree on the ground and i see this little critter and i think it was a uh, red tree vole come running out of the top and then run up the trunk i just watch it kind of spiral run up the trunk and come yeah. right up and stand right on the face cut and just stare at me. Just like a couple in, you know, like nose to nose with me just and just stares at me. And it was just like, dude, I'm sorry. I did wow. not know you were there. And it just kind of stands that there. Is amazing. Yeah. For like probably. That probably. Yeah. That probably was a vol. Yeah. I mean, it's very possible. It's on the edge of a fir forest. Yeah. Um, uh, it was probably 150 foot fur. It was just this giant fur and yeah. it just kind of stares and then just runs back down. And we ended up finding a, a nest with like probably four babies in there. And it was just, oh, it was wow. just to be honest, heartbreaking. Yeah. And they were the, yeah. they were the sweetest little critters, you know, they are. we, we kind of collected them all up in, in what was left of their nest and moved it off to the side. And I finished removing the tree and I come down and all the little babies just like, you know, kind of come down and l- pick them up and look at them. And kind of, you know, me being having that hippie side of me is just like, sorry, guys, I, you know, do my best to say sorry to these little critters that I just evicted. And they right. just start crawling all over with yep. me and like playing with me. You know, they're like, I've got like these four tree baby tree bulls yep. climbing on me like I'm their buddy. And I'm just like, oh, God, you guys really know how to make me feel bad, don't you? <laughs> you know, that's amazing. Yeah, it was it was unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But, you know that. Hey, that's, that's basically like getting schooled by the Lorax. That's exactly what it felt like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was the onceler there for a second. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah. nuts. Dang it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> wow. That, you know what? That's kind of, uh, that's part of the removal game. You know, it's part of what we do. We're yep. removing trees, and those trees are homes for people, and that's the balance of being an arborist. You know, we're, we're tampering yep. with nature. Yep. You know. Yep. But you got to see how well they can climb trees. They're amazing tree climbers. Amazing. I mean, that thing shot up, uh, you know, I mean, I'm guessing I was probably 120 feet up this fir trunk and it just came right up to me. Yep. Jumped on the the top and stared at me for a while. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the males 
literally, I, I think they can go like 200 feet in like 30 seconds or something like that. Oh, wow. They're big, gigantic furs. Yeah. And their whole mating season routine is literally like running up furs, looking for nests when they find a nest because nests are like one female will build a nest and she'll live there for her whole life. Wow. And then like her dominant daughter will stay there forever. So the nests become these multi-generational dwellings. Amazing. But the males aren't welcome except to mate. So they literally, they basically go and they squeak at the door and the female either lets them in or barks at them and makes them go away. And if, if the messages go away, they literally just run right back down, go to the next tree and they run up and they'll just do that all spring looking for mates. Mm. And then the moms just stay in their spot and yeah. have the babies. I wonder, teach them how to, I, wonder what was that? If, I wonder if their climbing prowess is like a, a courtship. Like they hear them scatter, like, oh, that one was fast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it could very well be. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. But it's funny. But, but the reason I thought it was definitely a vole is because of how unafraid of you it was. Yeah. Because the females literally spend their whole lives in a tree, they aren't afraid of humans and they don't know how to run away. It, it makes and, sense. And so it was probably just really confused that you were there, but wasn't afraid of you at all. And but and, like when they fall out of a tree, I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say, and it would make sense why it came right back up. If it's whole life is in that nest. It was like, this is, I need to be back there. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool. So, so basically, um, when you're doing surveys, if you find one in a nest, the biologists really want to catch them because they want to do a little DNA analysis. And so basically you like will probe the nest and they'll have multiple exits. And if you ever touch them, they'll like just bail out. So if a male bails out, they literally, and they can fall from any height in the forest and land on almost any surface and just run away. <laughs> wow. And, and, and that's what the males do. And that's actually how they get away from predators. They just bail and run when they hit the ground. Females bail and they hit the ground and they'll like just hide their head under a leaf and freeze. Huh. They just have no idea yeah. wow. how dangerous the forest floor is because they've basically never been there. Wow. That's crazy. It is pretty crazy. Man, so many fascinating creatures out there. You know, yeah. it, it just it's a reminder of kind of going back to earlier in the conversation how these trees are more than, you know, more than just these uh structures that grow in in around us, you know, and even more than just sentient beings. You know, I believe trees are sentient beings, you know, they're more than just living right. beings that communicate with each other and feed their young and are making decisions, but they're also a world in which yep. other creatures live, you know, that that's phenomenal. Right. Man. Definitely. And they're, they're a habitat and a food source. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And, they are an ecosystem. Yep. Yep. Definitely. So I've been really enjoying having ponderosa pines and large gray squirrels in my backyard. So I've been basically watching that whole interaction for years. And 
about 10 years ago, I discovered that I have the Geopera cooperi, cooperii, the pine truffle. And the pine truffle is like a favorite food of the gray squirrel. Mm. So been talking with one of my mycologist friends, a master's, I guess he's a researcher now at SOU. Um, but trying to figure out what that relationship is. And he's not sure that the Geopera is actually a mycorrhizal fungus that benefits the pine. Mm -hmm. But if it is, it would mean that the three organisms benefit each other in both directions Sure, where the pine is both habitat for the squirrel and provide seed that the squirrels eat and the truffle that the squirrel eats, then the squirrel makes poop that benefits the truffle by spreading it because most truffles propagate better after they've passed through a rodent's guts. So like oak truffles that everybody likes to eat, those have to go through a meadow mouse before they will actually take off. So, so the squirrels helping propagate the fungus. Um, and when the squirrel dies, its body feeds the tree mm-hmm. and the bits of the tree that fall off are feeding the fungus. So yeah, everything literally benefits both other organisms in both directions. And I just love stuff like that. Yeah, that's cool. Oh yeah. It's, uh, it's not, it's not just cool. It's necessary. We we need those relationships in this world, you know? Yep. And that's another reason to talk to people, you know, if they're talking about like scraping out their yard and replacing the topsoil, you'd be like, you know, you probably have good stuff in your soil that you want to keep. Yeah. And it takes a while to build that back up. You know, you scrape that off. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of composting. It's a lot of letting those leaves break down to build those fungus in the soils. That's a project in and of itself. Yep. Totally. Um, I guess, you know, we were talking a little bit about how you became an arborist. Where did you take your career after, after that? After you became an arborist, you spent some time, you learned yeah. how to, how to, you know, be more than just a, uh, a removal expert. Where do you take your career from there? Well, basically I, I sort of had the classic trajectory of a person you work and you kind of work up your company's chain until you're like the top climber or one of the top climbers or a crew leader or whatever it happens to be. And then in my case, you know, I was, single, I had become a single dad. I I went through a divorce and I was paying a mortgage. And basically I just started my own tree service because I wanted all the money instead of sharing it with the boss. Yeah. Um, So I tried my hand at running a tree service here in Ashland and I did okay. You know, I paid off the house basically but a lot of that was also contract climbing because 
while I am good with clients and good with the work, I really don't like running a tree service. I, I'm not good at pricing. So it was very hard for me to really put money away. It was always like just, just doing okay. I was never really excelling. Um, but despite that, I absolutely loved the work. And what I loved the most about being an employer was training my employees. Yeah. So again, back to that whole, like the satisfaction of having a complicated job go smoothly and seeing everybody doing a whole bunch of different roles and being like, yeah, this, this team's put together well, you know, and, and I had a role in creating that. Um, and basically when the economic downturn hit, Colin and Derek moved to Portland and I had no more employees and I just went full on into one man jobs down here or doing 1099 cooperation jobs with other one man shows or contract climbing. But, but when I was training with the village arborist here with my employees, I, I became aware of Arbor master, right? The company that preceded, North American training solutions. And I was like, that's something that I could do. I would love to work with a company that just like travels around and trains people. That's I, I really thought that was the dream job. Yeah. Um, and so basically as I moved away from running your traditional tree service and as I traveled around as a contract climber, and as I did a lot of competitions, I every time I met someone from first Arbor Master and then North American Training Solutions, I would basically like, you know, give them a the little elbow, like, hey, how do I get on board there? You know, like that's that's something I'd really like to do. And they'd be like, Well, you know, yeah, you'd be a good match, but we're not, you know, keep asking. Now is not a good time. Um, but keep asking. And um eventually. I was doing a contract where the two other people on the job were both um, instructors for North American training solutions. And one of them recommended to Ed that I come on board. And so that's how I got to where I am right now. Um, basically just doing my time, asking lots of questions and networking like a madman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. So what does what does that look like working uh, for North America Training Solutions? What what's a day in the life of uh, Augie these days? What I do mostly for them is site safety. Okay, where we go out into the field on big utility projects and make sure that everybody in the field is adhering to industry best practices local regulations, and then, of course, their host companies' administrative controls, you know. So, basically, we just go out there, gather data, and basically then report to everybody what we're finding out. And in some cases, we are able to do on-the-job training. That sort of goes assignment by assignment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes companies will want to pay for that but know that they'll get less information in the reports if we're actually in the field doing trainings. Yeah. So, so that really depends upon the client and the project. Um, but basically it's, 
it's a lot of, you know, going out and finding crews, doing the job and introducing myself to them, getting them comfortable enough that they just will work with me around. Yeah. Um, and then as I see things, I definitely, you know, it's, it's not like I'm just writing everything down and leaving. Like, I feel yeah. like that would be a disrespect to the workers. So I really do try and interact with them during the course of those days. I tell them everything I'm seeing. I do make recommendations, you know, um, we call them corrections. Uh, so even though I'm not doing on the job training per se, I'm still telling them what the expectation is and what they're supposed to be doing when I find them doing something that really needs to be addressed. Um, and then with the reporting, we basically compile data where over a pretty short amount of time, we can identify for a company where their labor forces weaknesses and strengths are. So you can focus on the weaknesses as, as they design future trainings. Um, and it's really awesome because I feel like we as an organization have developed a fair bit of trust. People know who we are now. They know that we do like to train. They know that we are there to help yeah. and to support people in their work and to make them more efficient and safer. Um, so yeah, it's, it's nice these days we get out of the truck and people start asking questions like, Hey, what would you do here? And is this the right thing to do? And, um, so we have that rapport going. Yeah. It, it's just working really nicely. I, I guess I'm losing my train of thought a little. So, well, I was going to cool. say, how much do you travel? Is this something where you're going all over the country? Cause I'd, I'd imagine that's a fascinating part of it. If you're seeing how people are doing tree work on all these different places and all these different ways and seeing how maybe regionally it's different or different, you know, like yeah. that's one of those things that fascinates me, how different people do tree work because our industry, you know, I think even on the West coast, we might, like you said, back in 92, it was the wild, wild West of tree work. I think partially the, yep. the West is the wild West of tree work. You know, I hear about how England does it and all these different oh, parts yeah. that, you know, the East coast, a lot of people go to school to become an arborist there, Yep. you know, and yep. then you come over here. I mean, I did it just because I just started working, you know, I just started following the right. guy that was ahead of, you know, that was running the, the crew and, you know, hauling brush for him for a year and trying to figure out how it's done, you know? So yeah, it, that's one of the unique things about our industry yeah. is there's so many ways to do it. But these days, there's so much work in California when the utilities are, you know, doing line clearance. Um, they tend to be really big workforces out in the field, so they need more eyes on them. And then... Um, is it mainly big businesses like utilities and these larger companies? How often are you working for smaller mom and pop organizations? Well, again, yeah, for me, since I'm in the utility forestry safety professional line, I'm working on big utility projects pretty specifically. Yeah. Which is interesting because I haven't done 
very much line clearance tree trimming myself. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm pretty darn educated yeah. and, and I have a, a lot to, to share with these folks. Um, and safety isn't rocket science. I mean, you know, once you've worked the industry long enough, you can, you can tell if someone's doing something unsafe. <laughs> right. Definitely. And, and uh, you know, I feel very comfortable with my electrical hazard awareness Yeah. Um, and with my ability to share that. And I'm starting to develop some ability to share it in Spanish as well. Um, but yeah, it basically between the, what we call routine, routine line clearance work, which is sort of just the ongoing practice of keeping trees away from power lines and then cleaning up after fires. There's basically endless work for me in California. Yeah. Yeah. And it's close. And so basically I'm a good resource for Nats because I don't have to travel that far to get to work. Yeah. Yeah. That so makes I'm sense. Pretty strictly California these days. Yeah. Tons of work down there um, after I got my tree but, risk assessment. But yeah, it's, it's great. Um, oh, yeah. I just get emails all the time like, hey, this job for this many months, like come down to California, <laughs> assess trees. That sounds pretty constantly. cool. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Maybe I'm wanting something. I'm wanting to do track. That's something I've been wanting to do for a while. It's just a, never gotten around to it. Yeah. It's an awesome course. You, you've you've yep. got it too, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, probably my favorite ISA. Cert- uh, you know, it's not really a certification, but my favorite ISA program that I've been through. Yeah. Yep. Even if I have did no you both desire do it in person. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I did it with uh, Terry Flanagan and he is just oh, an man. awesome He's instructor. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. Is a treat taken any, if you ever have the opportunity, yep. need, anybody yeah. listening, if you have an opportunity to take a class with Terry, uh, do it. It you'll, you won't regret it. Yeah. And even if I never I agree. use this for tree risk assessments, it was awesome to have as a climber. So that, that's another thing, like, you know, another reason for you to go take the class, even if you have no desire of writing consultations or whatever, (laughs) you know, as a climber, it's extremely beneficial. Yeah. As a climber, you'll do the best pre-climb inspections ever. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. As a climber, you, you should do an inspection every time you go up a tree (laughs) or every time you're with a buddy that's going up a tree, you know, every job you're on that a tree has climbed or that you're working around, you should be inspecting that tree. So it's one of the probably most applicable uh, classes I've taken as well. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, definitely pull test every dead tree you're going to (laughs) climb. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and, and that's a little segue, you know, the, the real reward that I get doing site safety is when you stop somebody who's just about to mess themselves up. Yeah. And, and I did have a climber who was getting ready to climb into a big dead, well, not big, a small ish, maybe a 60 foot dead red fur way out in the middle of nowhere. And he was just getting ready to scamper up and take the top out of it. And I convinced him to stop and to do a pull test. And we basically on the second pull, it failed about wow. 15 feet above the ground. Holy and smokes. he was going to, he, he was going to be making a cut at like 35 feet, sure. 40 feet. So it, he, he wouldn't have made it, you know? Yeah. Wow. Um, and, 
and that's satisfying for the ego, but it's also really good for the crews to see that because that drives the point of the importance of a pull test home greater than any amount of book reading ever could mm-hmm. or any amount of storytelling. But like they just, I, I mean, it changed that climber forever. He basically, like, he just, at first he was pretty speechless and then he was like, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm going to do that all the time now. And then, you know, in, in terms of, as I was mentioning earlier, we gather the data and then we tr- design trainings. So based on that experience, after I had talked with the crew about it and then talked to their supervisor and then talked to their, you know, I guess general foreman and then supervisor, then the next morning at their 630 in the morning safety meeting, I had done an overnight preparation and I did a big pull test talk for the whole company mm-hmm. so that while that thought was fresh in everybody's minds and while you know that a few of them are talking about it, like when the buzz is there, that's sort of the best moment to jump in and, and give them a quick little briefing and reinforcement on the importance of it. So, so that's another really satisfying thing. I get to be there. I get to see crazy things happen. I get to stop them from being bad. And then I get to tell people in a way that really will hit home with them. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, this is, this is a big deal. And you'll probably never do it like that again. And usually the answer is right. I will never do it like that again. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's a cool example. You'd hope that you never have to see something to to realize that okay, it's time to build a culture of safety. I'm, I right. have a thought, but I don't know if I'm articulating it right. Uh, well, maybe I can. Yeah. Are you are you kind of getting at complacency? Maybe a little bit. Like you know, because, because safety can't happen. In the moment, like this shit happens really fast. Yeah. You know, yep. but like even the best climbers that are super educated, are, those are some of the most da- like in danger of falling for complacency because you kick ass so many times and you do. And then all of a sudden you feel like you can cut these corners because you've made it's worked out so good for you so many times because you've done it right. But you start losing that connection and then all us, you know, I mean, that's why people get hurt 10 years in and 20 years in when they know what they're doing was wrong, but they did it anyways because they got complacent. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm going in a total no, different no. direction, but I get it. No, that's, that's actually, that's a real thing. You yeah. know, I've gotten away with it before, so I'll continue to get away with it again. Um, and there is actually, oh, I think I might have even, this is hilarious that we're talking about this huh. because here it is. The normalization of deviance Oh, yeah. the general process through yeah. which unacceptable practice or standards become acceptable as the deviant behavior is repeated without catastrophic results. It becomes the social norm for the organization. Yeah. Yeah. We were supposed to talk about that today, I guess, because I, I don't even know where that's, I found that's that. Interesting. I, was like, Wait, I was just reading about this. Yeah. Um, so that's a real thing. Yeah. And that, that kind of gets me to something because one thing I, I, these days I'm working for the city of Eugene. And one of the cool things about working for the city of Eugene is I'm in a position, you know, when you work for a company, a lot of times you're, you're just training people in your company. But at the city, one of our goals is to put on trainings for other arborists, you know, around, yeah. around in the area. 
And we've all been to trainings where you feel like the trainer is just repeating stuff you've heard a million times and you don't really feel like you're getting anything out of it. So earlier when you were talking about how you're design, you're kind of taking in information and designing trainings, how do you identify that information that's important to pass on? Because I want to be able to give trainings to the local arborists that help people up their game, you know, and I want them to be like, man, that was awesome. I want to go to the next city training so we can do this again. You know, how, right. what, it, what, how do you identify that? Well, I guess just keep track of the questions that people ask you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's... And, you know, the sort of, I guess what I'm, so I was just going to, uh, boy, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, so obviously doing site safety when it's not a near catastrophe like that or an actual catastrophe. Yeah. It's sort of identifying trends, you know? Okay. So I'm working with these four crews and I'm noticing that, you know, I've got at least between climbers and Sawyers, I've got at least four people that are kind of, mindlessly shifting from right-handed to left-handed operation with their chainsaws. So you sort of identify trends yeah. and you realize like, okay, this company is probably going to need to have a chainsaw training because you start to see that maybe inconsistent use of a chain break. Um, they don't know how to sharpen their saws. You sort of go, okay, yeah, this is, this is, these are all pointing to this organization needing to take a day and really learn a lot more about what they're doing with their, chainsaws and proper use and maintenance and care and inspection and all that good stuff. Um, So I think in a situation like what you're doing, if you don't have the opportunity to go and watch everybody at work all the time, then you really have to figure out other ways. And that's why I was thinking to keep track of what questions are asked of you because that will start to, you'll start to get trends, you know, like what's the best mechanical ascender, you know, and if you find that is a question that's coming up a lot, then you might want to do a a training about, you know, various different devices for stationary rope systems, whether or not they're great for work or recreational climbing, um, you know, all that good stuff. Yes. Yeah. That's a great Listen, yeah. I guess that's the answer is listen, look for trends listen. and listen. <laughs> Don't. Yeah. yeah, because really I am in a very fortunate situation where I get to be at their job site. They know who I am. They know we're cool. And so they just will relax and do their job and be honest about stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and that way we can be the best resource we can be for them because we can really see, but yeah, if, if you can't track people at work, then it really has to be either, either the questions they ask or while you're doing trainings, you could, you could also be sort of keeping your eye out for trends in awkwardness. Like if a lot of people are having an issue with one particular area, you can go, Oh yeah, that'd be another spot to, develop a training for the future because you know everybody's having a hard time getting their head around i don't know whatever it is what, um, yeah it could be a minute you know people have a hard time groundies 
have a hard time tying really good hitches. And there's really, there really aren't that many you need to know. Yeah. Basically, just a cow hitch with the better half is, is it for the most part. And people will do a million different things. And some of them are pretty terrifying. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, you sort of keep an eye on how people are dealing with the soft goods when they're playing with them at class. You might realize like, oh yeah, this, this company needs help there. And that company doesn't seem to understand mechan- mechanical advantage. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I find that, uh, people are generally almost excited and accepting of the, the feedback and the training you have because they want to be safer. And there's just a few outliers who might be, you know, button heads with it. Is that kind of what you see? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. It, it gets better and better. Um, the longer these projects go. And again, now we're starting to have employees who have been around for years. They're starting to, be able to share their skill sets with new arrivals. So I think the, the level is coming up. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely rewarding that people want to be safe yeah. and that they want to, you know, it, it used to be that like the idea of a good tree worker was somebody who was fast and could produce a lot. And now it's somebody who can produce safely and be there for a long time. Yeah. And you know, it's that whole like slow is smooth and smooth is safe and slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, you don't have to be rushing, but once you get robotic with things, then the, the your turnaround time gets really shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, and again, the team gets more and more oiled. You'll realize that, you know, you'll have groundsmen who are automatically doing chores while the climber is tying a knot or rigging a piece or whatever it happens to be. Um, and it, it works. Yeah. It, things just get better. Yeah. What's, what's the most common thing you see? And maybe it's always different. Maybe you don't have an answer for this, but like, every job site you're like, ah, oh, safety glasses again. Come on. Like what is there? Is there one that keeps reoccurring? Hmm. I don't know if there is any one thing. That's probably why the work's so interesting. Cause it's like, wow, I've, you know, all companies have their strengths and weaknesses. All teams have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, I would say most common thing. I don't. I, there's nothing that's popping up as the most common thing. I I I, I see it all. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's good. That's a great <laughs> answer. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I see really, really good stuff, and I see relatively scary stuff. But again, what's really awesome in my world is that I haven't 
I've run across a little bit of resistance in the last couple of years, but I haven't really run across somebody who was unpleasant about it Mm -hmm. in close to three years. Um, So that means that kind of, I I think that really means that we're doing our job right. Yeah. And that the word is out that we're there to help and that we're there to make people better. We're not there to report people. We're not there to get people in trouble. We're there to up their game. Um, so I really appreciate that these days. Um, cool. But yeah, so, it, so it, but yeah, seeing everything and having people want to be told what they're doing wrong. That's incredibly satisfying. Yeah. When you, when you walk up to somebody and you show them something and they're like, Whoa, thanks, man. I would never would have thought of that on my own. You know, none of us have that much experience. We just hadn't learned that yet. Yeah. And you know, they'll adopt it and, and they'll remember you for it. And and it'll make them safer and it'll make them more productive and happier down the road. Yeah. That's probably a lot of it. What it, a lot of what it is, is they just don't know any different. That's just how they were shown how to do this yeah. thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just like me in those first couple of years with my, you know, waist belt climbing harness, like I knew it was unsafe. I didn't know how unsafe it was. Yeah. I, it never occurred to me that I might injure myself in a tree and have to escape yeah, and, yeah. and, and have an ability to lower off on a rope that just had never occurred to me at all because I was so like success driven and the company was so production driven and, and yeah, we had completely normalized deviance there for sure. So, um, so yeah, a lot of, I think a lot of what got me first through those first few years was just luck. Um, maybe being healthy, but, but yeah, I was thrown to it. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've talked about it on here a couple of times, but I think that back, back then before the internet was around, you know, before everybody had a cell phone in their pocket, you know, and, uh, there was, there was this disconnect between kind of, it was like the rival tree care company. Cause you know, you, you looked at them oh, as yeah. the competition and as we've become more yep. connected, we're all buddies. You know, we, we go to the competitions yep. and we see each other and it's like, Hey, Augie, how's it going? It's nice to see you. What have you been up to? Instead of you're that guy yep. that drives that other truck around exactly. town and we kind of scowl at each other as we drive by, you know? And so I think <laughs> you flip each other off across the street. <laughs> yeah. But that's how it was. Yep. It was weird. That like, was Lake Tahoe in the early nineties. That was Eugene. I mean, I, I started in the yep. late nineties, but that was Eugene in the late nineties. You know, I think that's how a lot of people were. And it's just really cool to think about, you know, going from there to a place where, you know, where you couldn't even forget like exchanging secret trade secrets with each other. You weren't even talking to each other, you know, if you're the competition and now you're working for this company, which allows you to go to all these other companies and be, you know, you're, you're, 
you're welcomed in as like, Hey, what can you teach me? What can you show me this? You know, that's kind of cool. I feel a little bit of the same way at the city, you know, because my agenda isn't anything other than trying to help all the tree guys get better. Cause if all the tree guys are better, they're doing a better job taking care of the trees in the city, which is benefiting the urban yep. forest, which is helping us accomplish our overall goal, you know? So yep. it, it's cool to watch the industry go through that shift and it, you know, what a great spot for you to be, uh, where you're at being able yep. to have an influence and have a change on that level. And, you know, if you, if you have a, a tree company out there and you're listening to the, this podcast, look up Nats, look up somebody that can help come in with a different perspective, because I think it's so important, you know, it's so easy for an arborist who's told by every client after you come out of a big tree, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It's easy for us to get kind of a full head and think that we're the shit. And, and you know what? We are the shit, but it's also important to humble yourself and to understand that you have to get another perspective and that other perspective might be able to, even if it's just five or 10% better of a company, you know, that's five or five or 10% adds up a lot over a long time. And so it's so important to humble yourself, to bring in that outside help and help your company become better. Um, where do you think the industry is going from here. What do you think the next step is for the tree industry? I think it's drones, rigging drones. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I've actually, there's definitely an application for drones for installing climbing lines. Yeah. 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 Oh, my, and you know, people always laugh at me and Jamie probably knows where I'm going with this. But I think that someday drones are going to be powerful enough and reliable enough. So you're going to be able to hook your climb line into a drone, hover it up over the tree, and then just descend down into the tree off of that drone. That's perfect tie-in point. Perfect tie-in point no matter where you go, just over that, the top of the tree. And you know, it's crazy, but as technology gets better and the things that you know that are right. crazy today are normal tomorrow, that very well could be. But at that point, are you even going to be a climber? You know, yeah. Is it going to be like you know, some other crazy thing right. that gets well, in and makes the cut for you. It's funny. Cause yeah, I, it's funny how the brain works. Cause you're talking about hanging from a drone and I'm like, well, yeah, that would be cool because then you could be literally like helicopter crane removaling yeah. with you hanging from a drone. You don't even have to touch the tree. A rigging um, drone and a tie in drone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. A rigging drone and a tie in drone. <laughs> Um, but it is funny because it reminds me of, um, a client down here in Ashland when I was working for the Arborist in the late nineties, a guy, his first name was Nad and he was a television repairman and he was really interested in the work and was watching how we were installing lines and everything. And in this case, the job was a removal of big black oak over his house. And he, at the end of the day, was coming out and, you know, thanking us for our work and everything. And he said, you know, in the future, all this is going to be done by lasers. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he said, yeah, lasers are just getting more and more powerful. And basically, you could just cut that thing up into pieces and just cut them into small enough pieces that they just bounce off the house. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't think so, yeah. but I was being nice to him, but I was like, Oh, so that's, that's a good idea. That'd be interesting. So what about the, what about where the 
you know, the stem is like this big around. He's like, oh, and I just like whittle off little chunks off the side. It take a while, but you know, you just bury your house in chips. <laughs> like, oh my God. Can you imagine how many planes would fall out of the sky? How many birds you'd oh kill? Yes. How many aliens yeah. you'd be pissing off? Yeah. You know, this crazy laser. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'd be like disabling satellites and stuff. <laughs> you could chop up a tree with. <laughs> anyway, I loved his imagination. I was like, this guy's, this guy's cool. You yeah. Know? So. Well, and the reality is, is it's not going to be drones. It's not going to be lasers. It's going to be something that we can't even comprehend right now, but it I can't is, wait to although, see it. You know, I have, yeah, my first instinct, my first instinct to respond was, I hope it doesn't go too far Yeah, because I wouldn't want to lose the human connection. You yeah. know, I, I do know that for instance, in the UK, their safety culture is astounding. Yeah. And in most countries that have socialized medicine, the safety culture is astounding because the state is paying for everybody's accidents. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. the state then will have vested interest in keeping people safe. And so the state will then work harder to educate people earlier on in their careers. Interesting. So, yeah. so yeah. We, we basically lack that. Um, but I do know that in the UK, in their perfect world, if they could get there, they would never have a human climb a tree again. And really, that was the whole, you know, those um, spider lifts and everything. When those started to hit the scenes, um, you know, there were a lot of voices in the UK like, okay, cool, we can finally stop climbing trees and avoid all those accidents. But yeah. so Andrew, you just had the conversation with Craig Bachman and he brought that up. He went to the TCIA expo and he just noticed all this equipment, just iron everywhere, yep. big machines yep. everywhere. And he, he made the point that yep. climbing will still happen, obviously, but it's going to be more specialized. It's going to be a little more rare because the idea, the cost of training a new climber to get to a point where yeah. they can do big technical removals is way more yep. than buying that, that tree mech thing with the saw that grabs the tree and puts it, you know, whatever. Yeah. So yeah. it's going to be more the focused, Yeah. More focused on hard to reach places is where the climbers are going to go. If you can pull a piece of yep. equipment up to the tree, then that's, what's going to happen. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All those boom mounted harvesters are crazy yeah it's yeah. amazing just like constantly blown away I, I do get to see a number of those i get to see ridiculously gigantic chippers yeah it's pretty cool <laughs> yeah but it's also it's kind of it's like wow that's an amazing machine as i cringe because why are you chipping a four foot log <laughs> yeah amazing lumber yeah or anything yeah, yeah. I love it too, man. We we missed out on, I guess, like two years of the ISA comps, you know. And we got. A little, I know, but now we have nail. Yeah, we and had now, a little taste of it. It was so awesome. It was so good to see you dude, and and the whole. It was great to see you. Yeah, the whole tribe, like you're saying, man. I got fired yep. up. <laughs> I yep. got back. Yeah, that was. And Andrew and I put on a little mini competition with friends last weekend. We had a aerial rescue training and then a work climb. I saw you. Yep. 
saw your post on Instagram. Great yeah. job. That looks awesome. I wish I had been there. Yeah. So much fun. Yeah. I, I plan to do more. I kind of want to grow, grow this into something. Yep. Um, that was cool. kind of the first step. And next weekend. That was a I'm, good step. Yeah. Next weekend training the company I work for, we're going to do a similar thing. And uh, let's keep this ball rolling because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's my favorite part of tree work. Yeah, yeah, right on. Yeah, and we we would love yep. to uh, see you at one in the future. So we'll we'll keep in touch uh, as we do them in the future. Because uh, really, all the podcast, these trainings, this is all about building that community. Um, a lot of times, uh, we wrap these up with kind of final thoughts. Um, anything, Augie? Final thoughts? Um, uh, Andrew, say hi to Rob. Will and do. Fan, and Teresa for me. It's just really good to catch up with you guys. I really, I mean, I guess I just want to reinforce how you were talking about the community of tree workers that, that is a relatively new arrival. And maybe it's because of the internet. Whatever has created it, it's really, really cool. Yeah. And for me, I, I got into the comps before I even really had discovered the internet. Um, So, but, but really that was, that was where I discovered networking as an arborist and, and making friends with arborists in other areas and staying in touch with folks. And that really, I think is what's going to drive our industry forward. The most is, just sharing everything. I think uh, they call it a collegiate learning environment where everybody is just there to share knowledge, not to compete with each other, but to support each other and to help back each other up. Um, and I, I feel really strongly about that. You know, I, I am so grateful for what I call my traveling tree tribe. You know, this crazy group of people that are like, you know, thousands of miles from end to end and side to side. But every time we group up together and do something, it's awesome and we're safe and we're learning from each other and we're supporting each other. Um, and so, yeah, if, if you're working on developing that kind of a community up there, keep it up and I'll try and help as much as I can. Sweet. Sweet. Because, yeah. I love it. That's how, that's how we learn. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, I guess I'll just wrap it up by saying stay safe and keep learning. You too. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Thank Augie. Yeah, my pleasure. It's good to see you both. You too. And um, yeah, thanks for including me in this. This is cool. It's our pleasure, man. <laughs>